I entitled this morning's message, uh, A Promise Kept. And we're going to talk a lot about promises and contracts and covenants. And so I want to begin by kind of giving you an idea on what is a covenant. I'm going to say that word a lot, and it's not a word that we use very often. Uh, we understand the concept of contract. Basically, it works like this. In the Bible, God utilizes a series of contracts with people, both two-sided and one-sided. Two-sided would look something like this. I'm going to do this piece. You do your piece. We enter into a contract. It looks a little bit more like a business agreement. That would be a covenant. If there's a one-sided covenant which says, I'm going to do this regardless of what you're going to do, we call that a promise, even though that's still a covenant. So God does a series of either two-sided or one-sided agreements. When you think about the promise that he made to Noah, he said, I will not do this. That's a one-sided. We call that a promise. However, in Moses, the Mosaic covenant, he said, I want you to do this. I will do this. And when we work together, it will create this beautiful blend. That is much more of what we think of as a covenant. Now, we observe this in everyday life, probably most beautifully in a wedding. Uh, on the outside, we look at this couple that comes together and one says, I will do this. The other one says, I will do this. They enter into a contract together called marriage. And if either one violates that, then it ends up breaking it apart. Well, but from their perspective, from the inside, from anyone that is healthy getting married, you enter it into not so much as a two-way contract, but as a one-way promise. You walk into that and you say, I have vows that I'm promising to you, regardless of what you do on your side, I promise to love, and it goes on and on and on. So what you get to see in a wedding is actually both types blended together. Now, the reason why this is so important is that I'm going to highlight for you five covenants that God entered into with man. And the reason why is we want to assess whether or not God is faithful. This is a year of faithfulness here at Bridgeway. And so if we're going to talk about Christmas, we're going to talk about faithfulness in Christmas. Has God been faithful to the promises that he made? Has he been faithful to the contracts that he signed? So I'm going to kind of go through the five major covenants in the Bible just to review them for you as we prep our message for Christmas. Now, if you hear me say in this intro anything brilliant, I ripped it off. By uh, from a guy named Carl Laney. He came up with a lot of this contract uh, people place presence thing that I'm about to share with you uh, out of the new Bible companion. So anyway, I don't want to take credit where I didn't do anything. All right, here we go. The first covenant that God entered into is the one I mentioned earlier, which was the Noahic covenant. It's the one where we get the rainbow, right? Uh, you look at the rainbow and you said, well, what God said was a one sided contract where he said, I will no longer flood the earth and kill everybody with water. Now you look at that and you go, well, that's kind of a lame contract. It's lame because next time you wipe out the world, it's going to be with fire. So all you're doing is basically eliminating one option. 
You could kill us all with wind, but you can't kill us with water. That sounds like a lousy promise. Well, it's actually not because there's more to it. Here's actually what the rainbow represents. Here's actually what God is promising. Is he saying, your sins, your disobedience deserves death. Instantaneous death. But I will not hold you accountable in that way. I will give you time to turn this boat around. I will hold back on my justice for the moment. I will not instantaneously wipe you out, which is indeed what you deserve, but I will give you time. I will be patient. Now, along the way, God has blown up. You look at the Old Testament and you go, man, how come God is just wiping people out? Well, because every once in a while he does. To send a message going, you're not taking me seriously. You're not paying attention to what I told you to do. So I'm going to do one big explosive moment. So the rest of you, when I give you time to turn the boat around, you actually take me seriously. That is the Noahic covenant. The second one that kind of comes into mind is the Abrahamic covenant. That's with Abraham. God said, I am going to build through you three things. People place presence. I will make you into a people group where I will be your God. You will be my people. And indeed, the Jewish people have been the chosen people of God throughout history. He said, I will take you to a special place. We know it as the promised land. And there you will experience my presence unlike other people will. As he promised that, he said, I will do this. Abraham, ultimately, it's not about what you're going to do for me. I'm just telling you right now, I will make a light for the world in the Jewish people. I will sprinkle them as salt into this world of darkness, and they will be my way of conveying my will to the world. Well, then comes Moses. The Mosaic Covenant is the one that we wrestle with a lot more because it's actually a two-way contract. The way that he set it up with ancient Israel is he said, I want you to know what I want from you. I want to be very clear and spell it out what I expect of you. This is obedience. This is disobedience. If you obey me, there will be blessing. If you disobey me, there will be curse. I want to be very clear. I will set out. Look, I'll even etch it in stone for you. It's called the Ten Commandments, right? Here's your little rocks. Take a look at those. And then he puts out a whole series of codes. Now, we don't like that because it sounds like he's getting in our space. God, I can't believe you're always telling me what to do, blah, blah, blah. Our our rebellious nature rises up. But once again, if you've been with me any length of time, let's reason this out, which is, don't you want him to tell you what he desires? Or do you really just want to accidentally figure it out? We're just walking along, somebody rebels, and boom, they explode. Then you go, I guess that was a bad idea. You know, now it's good because you don't have any repeat offenders, right? They just explode. But everyone else is hyper-nervous, right? And then everyone's on meds, and it's it's just a hard day, you know what I mean? So along the way, God said, I will tell you exactly what I want. He said, well, I'm not very good at this stuff. What if I screw up? And he says, well, I have a, I have a whole plan for that too. Because I want you in relationship to me, but I'm not going to encourage your bad behavior. So if you mess up, I put in a sacrificial system 
to where you can go through a series of cleansing and reintroduce yourselves in a right manner and we can have fellowship again. That's actually the Mosaic covenant, right? Well, the fourth one is the Davidic covenant, David, right? This seems to be a bit more narrow in scope because God comes to the king of Israel during their most secure and safe time. And he says, through your lineage on this throne, I will bring about a king that will reign here on earth as it is in heaven. And he will reign forever. Now that is referring to the Messiah, the promised one, the chosen one. That is going to come into the world and he will set up a whole new system. And indeed, that is the fifth. The fifth covenant or contract is the new covenant in Christ's blood. And that is what we live under today. Which is the idea that God is now provided a plan by which he takes care of the sin problem once and for all. Before, it used to be a mosaic concept, which is, I'll provide you a way to come back to me. And now, for those that are God's children, he takes care of sin once for all, wiping it out, dying on the cross for the sins of his people. And indeed, we are now cleansed, and when the Father sees us, he sees his own Son, and we are 100% acceptable. Not only that, but he gives us the indwelling Holy Spirit so that we have a bent towards obedience as opposed to only a bent towards disobedience. Are we all following that? Good. No one is. Praise the Lord. And yet, even with all this promise and everything, we struggle with the faithfulness of God. We say, God, here's my problem with that, is that it seems that you make a lot of promises, but in my life personally, you've let me down so much that I don't trust you anymore. Uh, God, uh, you said if I was a good little boy, I mean, I've been reading the Old Testament, if I was a good little girl, good little boy, and I did what I was supposed to do, things were going to go easy for me. And every time I see sorrow and pain and grief and loss, you disappoint me over and over. I keep trying to do what you tell me to do, and things keep being difficult. I'm trying to read your word. I'm trying to pray. I'm in church all the time. I'm trying to love on other people, and I still lose my job. I don't trust you. Well, I guess we got to back up at some moment and say, is that accurate? Indeed, has God been faithless to you? Because either he has or he hasn't. This is where we have to re-rack. Because what I believe God tells us in that moment is, stop telling me I signed a contract I didn't sign. I never told you that. Quit putting words in my mouth. Stop telling me that what I said was, if you were my child, I would make your life cake. I never said that. As a matter of fact, I believe I said, as Jesus Christ, if you walk with me, you're going to have a hard time. I I think I was pretty open about that. I think I put the book of Job in there for a reason, which he's better than everybody sitting here. And his life turned out really rough. I think I've been very straightforward on saying what my promises are to you are these. If you will come to me, if you will surrender and repent of your sins and get over yourself, 
and you fall down before me and let me call the shots, you, I indwell you. You invite me into your life. I'm now in charge. If you walk and cling to me, I will see you through this life. I will let my glory radiate, radiate out from you. And even in a mixed up, crazy, confusing, difficult, painful world, you don't have to go through it alone. I will walk with you through that. And ultimately, I'm going to get you home to the place that you were built for, this tiny little life which is kind of like a rough draft of the real deal. I'm going to walk you through it. We're going to get through it as fast as possible. We'll wrap up this. You will know me and we will be together forever. That's what I promised you. Stop telling me that I'm faithless. I have never failed and I never will. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. God keeps his promises. I mean, it's as simple as that. God keeps his promises. How do we know that he keeps his promises? Well, even think about it rationally. He is the designer, creator, and master of the universe. He is the one that dictates what reality is and what it is not. He is in charge of nature and supernature. Therefore, there is no obstacle that can come between him and his promises because he's in charge of everything. So nothing is difficult for him. Nothing catches him off guard. Nothing's going to slide in and deviate his plan. He will do exactly what he wants when he wants it completely all the way through. Nothing can defy the promises of God. Turn with me to Genesis 3.15. It's on page 3. Makes it easy. Open up your Bible at the beginning and you're almost there. Page 3, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Before we enter into God's word, let's just pray this morning that he would open it up to us so we could see it, yeah? Heavenly Father, we submit ourselves under your teaching today, Lord, that we want to have our faith built up, that we believe you at your word, that we don't allow our circumstances and our twisted, bent perspective to ruin your worship. But God, allow us to see you for who you are and what you have indeed promised. And may we cling to those unmovingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 3.15. As we walk into the Bible, some of you are new with us today. Let me remind you of this. We are dealing with an ancient Eastern document. What that means is it's not from a Western mindset. What we like today is God tell me what I want to know, exactly what I want to know, in the manner that I want to know, and give me all the details, but only the details I want to know. Well, the Eastern view is far more beautiful than that. The Eastern view is, give me a holistic picture, draw me a painting, so that I don't just get the answers I want to know, but as I dwell on this concept, it will radiate out into a thousand ideas that can help me live through life. I think that that's a different way of looking at things. So when we engage with the Bible, we always go, well, how come it's not more clear? Well, because it's supposed to be deeper than what we might imagine. So indeed, we're going to read a verse that you would blow right past, and yet it is perhaps one of the most early promises God ever made to us. Genesis 3.15, it says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All right. Now, I know most of you have not written that in your journal. 
I know most of you do not have that on your mirror, right? Uh, you don't even know what he's talking about. So let me give you a little, a little context. Adam and Eve screwed up. We know that story, right? We're in the Garden of Eden. God said, don't eat the fruit. And that was all about obedience, disobedience. Do you love me? Do you not? What are, you know, I'm giving you an option here. You opted for something else. You think I'm holding out on you, right? And that was really what Satan did. He always tempts us the same way. I mean, he's got some variety, but he kind of goes back to the core one, which is God's holding out on you. There's a bunch of cool stuff in this life that he doesn't let you take a part in because he's just trying to kill you. He's just trying to shut you down. And so he's holding out. If you really want to be fulfilled and satisfied, I mean, you're only here once, right? So just go for it, man. I mean, that's really been his trick all along. Well, sure enough, he did that to Adam and Eve and they went for it and everything spiraled into chaos. Well, there's consequences for that. God said, when you eat of it that day, you will surely die. Well, they had eaten of it and he's now handing down curses based upon it, which is discipline of God. He disciplines the man woman. Well, he also disciplined the serpent. Now the serpent is not just God's angry at all snakes. It's specifically Satan, right? Now, even then he talks about him, you know, you'll be cursed on your belly. You'll crawl. And you're like, did snakes used to have legs? I thought those are called lizards, right? And that kind of thing. We don't know, but it says, I'm going to put enmity, enmity between you and the woman. You're like, that's why girls don't like snakes. No, that's, that's not what it's talking about. It's saying, I will put a struggle between that which you create and that in the human race. So meaning when Satan sows seeds of wickedness within our lives, we hurt each other. So that which Satan is sowing and that which God is sowing are going to be in constant war between each other. That's actually what it means. And then it says something intriguing. It says between your offspring and her offspring. But a better translation is between your seed and the woman's seed. Now, most of you may not have taken anatomy, but I think you're all pretty clear. Women don't have seed. Guys have seed. I don't want to get too deep on a Christmas message here on that one. But I think we all know what we're talking about, right? Why would he say that? Because almost always, whenever the phrase seed is used, it is used of a man. Why would he say it of a woman? Well, because there's going to be one time in history when a guy's not involved. Oh, that's intriguing. When did that ever happen? The virgin birth. This is a veiled reference to the virgin birth because God was going to say, listen, I'm going to operate through her seed. Ultimately, it'll be the heavenly father overshadowing and the guy's not involved. It moves on. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Those are some light words when it talks about injuring. Would you rather be kicked in the shin or the head? I think you're probably rather get kicked in the heel or the shin. The idea is that you can bite at his heel. You will cause him pain, but he will crush your head. Now, that, of course, is a reference to the fact that Satan will cause pain to Jesus Christ, ultimately on the cross, but yet the cross will cause such great victory that it will shatter and destroy the enemy. Now, this was made, let's say, and I don't want to argue with you too much on this, but let's say this was made at Adam and Eve's date, which is about 15,000 years ago. Has God made good on his original promise that is 15,000 years old? Did the cross happen? Was Satan crushed? The answer to that is yes. Let me remind you of some other promises. I'm a history buff. Uh, if you're not a history buff, 
you're probably new because I have weeded you out already. Uh, you already go, that's a stupid church. I don't want to learn from that guy. He keeps talking about history. So you probably aren't here. Um, so let me just remind you of a few things. 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years before it occurred, because Jesus came around 2,000 years ago. So the dates that I'm going to give you, 3,000 years ago means 1,000 years before it happened, King David, under the power of the Holy Spirit, began to describe the death that the Messiah would die. He talked about being pierced. As a matter of fact, he talked in a very specific fashion about the death that the Messiah would die, which we know is via crucifixion. He referred to the idea that this Messiah would also raise to life and would also ascend back up into heaven. 300 years later, 700 years before it ever happened, the prophet Isaiah said that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. His ministry home base would be in Galilee. He would be a healer of the blind, deaf, and the crippled. He would be accepted by Gentiles, and he would have a gentle ministry. Micah, in that same day, 700 years before it happened, said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Hosea, in the same time, said that he would be sent to Egypt as a child. A hundred years later, 600 years before it happened, Jeremiah, the prophet, said that he would be protected from a baby massacre. That's very unusual. Why would he say that? Because that's exactly what happened. Daniel, during that same time, said that the Messiah would be presented to Israel as a king on a specific date. Guess what happened? Exactly. 2,500 years ago, 500 years before it happened, the prophet Malachi said that there would be a forerunner to the Messiah. A man we find out was very similar to Elijah, a man that we later know as John the Baptist. Zechariah, the prophet, said that the Messiah would be presented to Jerusalem as a king in a very specific way. What we know from the Gospels is every one of those nailed it. Hundreds of years, a thousand years, 15,000 years before it ever happened. Does God keep his promises? Indeed, he does. And today we are going to allow that to soak into our spirit, build up our faith, because if God makes a promise to you, he will complete it. If he has done so in the past, he will do so in the future. If he has done so to the general, he will do so to the specific. If he has done so to others, he will do so to you. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. Page 807, Bibles under the seats. Let me tell you a couple stories. There was a couple by the name of Zechariah and Elizabeth. We always start the Christmas story a little later on, and we, we skip this one. We go right to the Joseph and Mary story. I'll get to that. But before that, there was a couple, and they were older. You go, what do you mean by older, young man? Right? I mean, God called them old. If God calls you old, you're old. That's it. That's all I'm saying. An older couple that didn't have any kids, she was barren, could never have any children, and they were way past the idea that they were ever going to have a kid. That was not possible within the reproductive system. Well, Zechariah and Elizabeth were really amazing people. They were wonderful people that loved God with all their heart, and Zechariah had an intriguing job. He was a priest. 
The way that it worked at this time is that the priests would go in before God, but because there was a whole bunch of them, they would kind of draw straws to see who gets to go in. And they would say, that's God's will for who's going to go into the holy place which is very, very important. Who gets to go in? They go through a ritual purification. If they do anything wrong, they get killed. It's kind of a serious job. So sure enough, he draws straws and it's his turn. He goes in and everybody's praying for him on the outside because they're like, Lord, please don't kill this guy. Please don't. I play horseshoes with this guy. He's so nice and everything. And don't, I really love this guy, right? Nobody wants this guy to die. And so they're all praying for him on the outside, and they're like, I hope he just hurries up. All he's got to do is go in and light the incense, do a couple other things, and get right back out. Well, sure enough, Zechariah goes in there, and you know that you're already on edge, right? I don't know how many of you do have jobs with hazard pay where you could just go at any time, but this is one of those. He goes in already nervous. He's lighting the incense altar when out of his periphery, he sees an enormous dude standing there. Now, I don't know, they probably didn't reference it in the Bible or put it in Hebrew, but it would sound like this, and Zechariah soiled his undergarments, right? (laughs) I'm supposed to be in here alone. I don't know why massive dude got in here. I didn't even see him show up. Has he been in here the whole time? It's Gabriel the angel. Gabriel the angel says, hi. The guy, you know, falls over. And he said, he said, hold up, hold up. I'm not here. I'm not here to hurt you. All I'm going to tell you is this. Your wife's going to have a kid. And that son that you're going to have, I need you to name him John. He is going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even in utero before he's even born. Well, what's intriguing is right in his heart immediately, like the rest of us, Zechariah is going, no way, that's not going to happen. I mean, I appreciate the fact that you're Gabriel. I appreciate the fact that you're in the presence of God. But I do think we all know reality is it can't happen. We don't have that ability anymore. When the doubt rose in his mind, Gabriel tracked on it and said, hey, I can see obviously you don't believe me. So quite frankly, I need you to be quiet. So we're going to go ahead and zip it. You're mute now because I'm sick of listening to you. We're done with you, and I need you to name the kid John. Just nod your head. That's all I care about, boy. All right, get out. So he comes out freaking out. Everyone's scared. Oh, my gosh, I thought you died. And he's, you know, and there's nothing coming out. And, And so he gets a little tablet, and he's like, it was freaky. There was a big dude and all this stuff, right? Well, then ultimately, what happened? Well, Elizabeth became pregnant, and she indeed had a child. Just like Gabriel said that God promised him. That's amazing. The whole Christmas story is a series of promises kept. Well, of course, the next most famous is that another girl is told that she's going to have a baby, right? This is the one that we all know. Mary and Joseph. And when the angel comes, or same guy, by the way, Gabriel. Gabriel comes, he's apparently the stork angel, where he just tells everybody about babies, right? He comes in and he says, you are highly favored, which is rather ironic, because the story he's about to tell her is really rough. What he says to her is this, the Lord is with you, you are favored by God. She's completely scared out of her mind. He says, you will have a baby and you will call him Jesus, the son of the most high. He will be given the throne of David to reign over Israel forever. And she said, not in a doubting way like Zechariah, she said, and how will this process come to be? I'm a virgin. I don't, that's, you know, I'm just pointing out the obvious. 
He said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and he will be the Son of God. Now, I need you to understand what he just told her. Tradition shows that maybe she was 15, right? We don't know how old she was. I don't care if she was 17. I don't care if she was 21. I don't care if she was 35. The fact remains as this is what she was just given. An impossible thing is going to happen to you that nobody's going to believe. You're going to have a kid. I know you're engaged to Joseph. However, we're going to bypass him. Before you're even married, you're going to be pregnant, and you're going to be under a cloud of suspicion for the rest of your life. No one's going to believe the God thing happened. Everyone's going to shun you, and you're going to have a hard existence. Oh, and by the way, ultimately, it's going to be a very rough parenting experience. How does she respond to that? How does a 15-year-old respond to that news? Well, she said this, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What? Because here's what she just said. Okay. The angel just shattered all her dreams. Hey, we're going to, I'm going to marry Joseph and we're going to get a house out in the country and we're going to do this and we're going to plan this. Maybe we'll have some kids later on. And no, everything you know is decimated. You are now going to be cast under a cloud of suspicion for your whole life. You will have something in your world that rocks everything. And how does she respond? Okay. I'm your servant. That's what I'm. How can she say that? How do you wrap your mind around that? You can only do that if your paradigm of living is God, I'm here for you. Whatever you say goes. I know I'm not guaranteed comfort. I know I'm not guaranteed ease. All I know is that I'm here for your glory. So whatever you want to do, bring it. I'm only here for a short amount of time. Let's go. You want to give me that? Fine. You want to give me that? Fine. I got nothing else on the docket. What do you want to do today? My dreams, whatever, I'm holding on to them lightly. Let's go. I don't know any of us that are that mature. I don't know any. So here's the deal. Protestants are rude to Mary, right? Because we're all overcompensating for the, the traditional Catholic view. They're putting Mary too high. You know what? We're putting Mary too low because here's why. She's amazing. What an incredible young lady that acts more in faith than all of us put together and says, let's roll with it. Okay, well, it's intriguing because while this is all going on, Joseph comes into the mix. Matthew 1.18, let's take a look at the story. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Okay, let's stop there. Joseph's process. Let's make it real. And I can't believe I finally got a chance to get married and I finally get this girl. She's amazing. I mean, nobody's like her. I know all the other ladies around town. I get it. You know what? She's golden. She is the absolute dream. Now, granted, tradition has him much older than her. So maybe there was a time where he had to wait. Maybe he was a widower. We have no idea. But now all of a sudden he has dreams again. My life can be filled with joy. We can have a family. I can name my first kid Joseph and he can be just like me. And we can do all kinds of exciting things. And now finally I found her. 
her. I was wondering, would I ever get married? Yeah, I am. This is awesome. And what? What? She what? She went out on me? What? What do you mean? Oh, it was God. Right. Yeah, I don't don't think so. Listen, you're not normally a liar. All I'm telling you is, I can't do this. I thought I knew you. I thought we were headed this direction. You just ripped my guts out. Then he goes home and thinks about it. God, you know I'm trying to be a good guy. I never want to hurt this woman. I'm trying to be good, but you know she crushed me. And I don't know what to do. All I know is that for I got to get out of this thing. I'm not doing this. We're not even married yet. Ultimately, we're engaged. I get in our culture. I got to go through a full divorce just to break off the engagement. You know what? I'm not going to start screaming stoner, which I could do. And I could completely just shatter her and get her back for all the stuff that she just did to me. You know what? I'm not going to be that guy. But I will tell you, Lord. I'm devastated. So you know what? I don't know. Whatever. Let's just let's just take care of this. I'm out. Pick it up in verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means she's not lying, my friend. It is God. I know it's impossible, but that's why it's so special. She didn't lie to you. She's legit. And of all times, she needs you to back her up right here, right now. She will bear a son. That's a promise. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Go to verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. He will save his people from his sins. That's another promise. Is that really how it happened? Think about it this way. Joseph had to follow through on a promise. He promised that he'd marry her. In that culture, you follow through on your promises. He was going to be faithful until he was hit with the impossible. And then he said, I don't want to do this anymore. God, you're pushing me too far. I cannot be faithful at this moment. And he began to transition into being faithless. And God showed up. Hey, kid, I get it. I'm pushing you too far. I'm going to remind you of something. I'm going to give you a view of the future. He's actually God. Can you handle it now? All right. All right. I need you to back her up. I need you to be very careful with her. Okay. We're going to do this together. I understand you don't have the faith to get through this. So I'm here. Let's walk together. Can we do that? All right. Good enough. Let's keep moving. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful. And there's times when we don't feel like we can do anymore. But he comes in and he carries us in those moments. And he gives us encouragement. Pick it up in Luke chapter 2, verse 8. Luke 2, verse 8, page 857. We're going to the right in our Bibles. Luke 2, 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. 
Stop right there. What do you think they were thinking? First of all, they're thinking, I'm scared out of my mind. After that, what were they thinking? They were thinking, be for all the people. Man, you're going to bring in the Savior and like everybody on earth is going to be blessed by this guy? That's stunning. Do you understand? They're still not seeing it big enough. Their imagination is not large enough to capture the promise God made because it is not just all the people in the world. It's all the people of all time. They didn't even imagine that it went all the way backwards and it went all the way forwards. And 2000 years later, we're saying that it matters to us and we're having a Christmas celebration about how he changed the world. They didn't have that idea. Why? Because the promises of God are deeper than we can ever even imagine. I mean, we think we got it, and we still can't even believe it. But if you really saw what he was truly saying, then you really wouldn't believe it. But if God says it, it is true. Verse 11, for unto you this day in the city of David, that's Bethlehem. I remember a guy said that hundreds of years before this. Yeah, I mentioned that. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. Meaning, I made a promise, I'm following through on my promise, and just so you know that I'm good at my promises, I'm going to give you a little bit of proof along the way. I'm going to tell you what's about to happen. Prophecy is a promise. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's stop right there. Angels, we know, consistently say before the throne of God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we look and we go, man, they sure seem to be able to praise a lot. Why do they do that? Why do we have such a hard time praising here at church? Because we see from a distance, they see it right in front of their face, because worship always emits from a revelation. They are seeing something and it's making them going, wow. Therefore, the point of this message today is that when you go home and you have your Christmas day and you reflect on what I just revealed to you because God revealed it to me in God's word, therefore, you're going to enjoy your Christmas and say, wow, his promise is bigger than I ever imagined. His gift is deeper than I ever pictured. He continues on when the angels went away from them into heaven, verse 15, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they heard and seen as it had been told them. I'm going to go on a tangent. Ready? I'll just notify you ahead of time. (laughs) Tangent is this. I was reading a book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. The first three chapters talk about the Christmas story and how, from a Middle Eastern perspective, us little gringos on the side don't have a clue what we're talking about. Uh, One of the primary things that he debunks is this idea of there was no room for them in the inn. We see that verse and we go, there was no room for them in the inn. Oh, that means that every time they went to a Motel 6, it said no vacancy, right? And then, boy, that didn't work out too well. Everybody's rejecting Jesus. That is not correct. There's a certain variety of reasons why they were actually welcomed very warmly. First of all, Joseph is from the line of David. Out of all the Jews, he had a very special designation on his name. So everybody was mandated to take him in. 
When it says that there was no room for the inn, he goes back through and uses every time that word is used in the Bible, it refers to a guest room. If they wanted to say a place where someone could put money up and put them there, that's a different word. As a matter of fact, the way that it works, according to him, is that when you have poorer families, they basically, their house consists of two pieces. The main living room and a guest room. You're never allowed to be in the guest room because hospitality is such a severe issue in the Middle East. You're not allowed to go in the guest room even if you're poor. What it says is when they arrived, the guest room was already full. Somebody already had somebody there. So they had to take him into their living room and the family brought them with them. You go, but he was lying in a manger. I mean, that's where the animals are. Poor people keep their animals inside their living room. Why? Because the mangers are built into the floor. And in the morning, they keep them in so they won't get stolen or they won't get too cold in the winter. They can leave them out nearby in the summer, but not in the winter. But that's not the point. The point is they keep them inside for theft. In the morning, they get up, they walk them out, and they tie them up outside. But the animals can eat during the evening, and they're all in the same area. So they were brought into the living space. He said, extra information on why that's true. It says, and the shepherds came in, and they were praising God when they left. Hospitality in the Middle East demands that if the shepherds arrived and saw that it was crammed and there was not enough room, they were demanded by Middle Eastern standards to take the family home. This was not a, they were rejected. It was a, man, it's crowded. We're going to make sure that you're with us. Now back to the sermon. Eight days after Jesus was born, like all good Jewish families, they took Jesus to get circumcised at the temple. And when they walk into the temple, there's a guy who had been promised something by God. His name was Simeon. He too was old. Simeon was told by God, you will not die until you see the Messiah. As this baby is brought to him, he says, this is it. This is the one. And he actually said this, Luke 2, 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed come against and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What did he just say? He just said, God, you kept your promise to me, and I know that you will keep your promise to the people that he will be a savior to save so many. But by the way, Mary, I need to give you some bad news. Just as much as you have had this blessing in your life, I need you to know it's going to tear your guts out. Did that happen? Well, I don't know. How does it feel to be at the foot of the cross and watch your son be crucified in public execution? While he's prophesying... uh, A woman that's 84 years old, a widow, who lived day and night in the temple of God. Every day she worshipped and worshipped and prophesied and worshipped. She sees this baby and she starts saying, this is the Messiah. May all the people get ready, because here it comes. You see, the promises didn't stop at the Christmas story. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, page 888, as we wrap up the message this morning. 
page 888. John chapter 3. We're about to take this promise thing and make it incredibly personal to you and I. And it's this. John chapter 3, if you could look with me at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's a promise. When he says whoever, guess who that means? You. God loved the world so much that he made sure he would go to the nth degree to rescue his creation. Knowing our rebellion, knowing our wickedness, knowing our attitudes, knowing our pride, knowing our arrogance, he said, I will not let them die. And he sent his only son, God became flesh, dwelt among us, came to die, died on the cross for our sins that we might be cleansed. And he gave us that amazing new covenant that if we would come to him and invite him into our lives and repent of the wickedness that is within us. That he would rescue us because he cannot stand the idea that his children would ever die in eternal death. So he took all the heat and died a million eternal deaths because he's infinite. And he took all that blow against his spirit and his chest that you might be saved and be free. And he says, I promise you that whoever believes in me will not die eternally, but I'll get him home. That's a promise. And if God has been good at promises all along, why do you think that he would fail in that one? Oh, but God, you don't know my wickedness. You have no idea how messed up I am. I got such twisted stuff going on in my head, it would make you blush, Lord. Really? Try me. Your sin's not too deep. I got you. We can do this. I'm ready to go. Because my imagination is bigger than yours. You think you're depraved. Right. I can handle that. As a matter of fact, I did. I just want you to come home. I just want you to love me. It's why I made you. Why are we walking apart? I don't get this. How much more do I need to do for you? Turn to our last passage, Acts chapter 4, verse 11, page 912. Acts chapter 4, verse 11. Peter, after the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and you know him, he's been through the denying Jesus and professing Jesus and denying Jesus, that whole thing, right? He's a mess, but all of a sudden he's reinstated and the Holy Spirit comes upon him. He walks out and says at the top of his voice to all his Jewish friends and all his Jewish enemies, and he says this. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. You discarded the Savior. He gave it to you to lay a foundation and you threw it away. It has now become the most important stone of the entire building, the cornerstone. 
And there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's a promise. You say, yeah, 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 I got that. I got that, Jesus. I appreciate the offer. Love the idea that you're going to take me home. That's cool. You know, I'm going to examine my options and we're going to see how it goes. Really? We're going to see how it goes? No, we're not. Guess what? You got one option. That's it. Well, that's awfully limited. Shut up and be thankful. I'm here to save you. Quit looking around. Don't look over my shoulder. There's nobody else in line. Stop looking over there. Stop looking at yourself. You can't save yourself. You've got nothing. I am here for you. Look me in the eye and listen to my words. I love you. Stop it. Come home. We're all right. Walk with me. Come on. Walk with me. Because I promise you, I'm your only chance. But I promise you, if you walk with me, if you allow me to consume you, we'll be together forever. As powerful as all that is, understand that the promises continue to echo out. Why? Because Jesus said, I came once. Guess what I promised to you? I'm coming back. And when I come back, you're going to see exactly who I am. And when I come back, I want you on my team. When I come back and I come riding in out of the sunset, I want you to hit it. Let's go. Here we go. Here we go. Put on your armor. We're ready to go because we're about to go in victory, right? If God promises it, it will be done. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Your Christmas gift is astounding. We can't even wrap our minds around the beauty that you have wrapped for us within the incarnation. In a baby, Jesus, you are all that we need. That you would be born to die, live a perfect life that we might be able to trade with you in substitution. That you would, that you would pour and lavish out grace and love by taking the heat that if we would only trust in you, we would never die. Lord, may this Christmas be beautiful for all of us. Would we remember what you've done and never let it go? Be glorified in us, Father, your servants, in Jesus' name. Amen. The closing challenge is this. Fulfill the obligations that you have this season. Life is a way of interfering with our promises. So don't settle for mediocrity, but with full intention. Embrace the beauty of faithfulness and do it with all your heart. That means do what you said you're going to do. Amen? Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful day.